You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on this episode, I'll be talking to Mark Barlet, founder of the Able Gamers Charity, an American non-profit organization dedicated to improving accessibility in the video game space. Mark discusses the challenges and opportunities of combating social isolation through play and offers brands advice on amplifying the call for greater accessibility across all industries. Also joining me are Stylus's Annie Corsa, Senior Editor of Pop Culture and Media, and David Pinati, Head of Product Design, to discuss the latest Stylus Macro Trend series of reports, Disability Futures. But first, here's Mark Barlet. Able Gamers is a nonprofit that works to combat social isolation among people with disabilities by using video games. I'm a service-disabled veteran of the United States Air Force myself, but my disability was never really a catalyst for how I approached video games. I had a lot of different challenges through me creating those new normals that people who become disabled have to deal with, but video games were never one of them. I used video games to stay connected with my best friend, a lady that I've known since the sixth grade. I introduced her to a really good friend of mine while I was active duty in the military, and they became husband and wife. We were avid gamers. At the time, it was like EverQuest and EverQuest 2, because we're in the early 2000s. I had my snacks. I had my gaming. I was ready to go. I called my friend Stephanie, and Albert answered the phone, and I could hear Stephanie, my best friend, crying in the background few years prior to this terrible night, Stephanie was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And this Friday afternoon, multiple sclerosis had decided that the hand she uses to control her mouse just wasn't going to work. And so she was crying because like, she loved games. Games were the way she stayed connected with friends. So her friends were games. And she was watching this disability take away that opportunity for her. I found out a little bit later, but as a consumer, as a disabled individual, trying to advocate for my disabled friends, I was coming up with nada. I think this is the problem I'm going to try to solve. I'm going to start advocating because I love games and I want everyone to love them. And so that evening, Able Gamers was born. I just made the decision. I'm going to solve this problem. So what was the next step for you? The next steps were terrible. The next steps, we got so many things wrong. I mean, my initial idea was to build a website and a forum back in the day when forums were how we communicated mainly on the internet. I was going to create a place for people with disabilities who loved video games to come together and we were going to solve problems. I quickly realized that that wasn't going to really solve anything because while we were finding people, everyone was coming with no solutions. Everyone was just coming with problems. So it became very clear early on that this wasn't going to work. There's nothing you and I can do in the outside of the gaming world to add closed captioning to a game because that requires a software solution. So what we quickly morphed into was an advocacy organization. We quickly morphed into having to educate content creators on the fact that people with disabilities were consumers, the fact that we want to enjoy these things. We need to bring the understanding that people with disabilities to the people who are in positions to make change because I can't. And so what's changed in the last 15 years? What's the progress from your perspective? 
I think if someone's asked me, like, what are the big wins? Like, why are we where we are today? And here's what I think the big wins were. So one, Able Gamers was out there advocating, talking about people with disabilities as a market, not a sad story, but a market. The fact that we have money to spend and we're willing to spend it. You had the advent of the iPhone and the app store. And all of a sudden you had this opportunity or this mechanism for two college kids in a dorm to be able to make serious money, you know, developing an app. That was a sea change within gaming because you now had an opportunity where it wasn't just three or four publishers controlling everything that hit the market. Indie developers who were competing for eyeballs came to us before anyone else asking how they can create accessible experiences because they were looking for a market differentiator. They were looking for something to talk to a reporter about or to find an audience because they're competing in this huge space. Then you had time. The young people that we were talking about, these passionate gamers who we were sharing the plight of people with disabilities were now graduating from college and making games. So we now had fans on the inside. Then I think you have social media that gave, for the first time, all of us a potential to have a voice and allowed people with disabilities to create marketing problems for game companies or create marketing opportunities for companies that did it right. So you had change in the competitive market. You had us talking about the fact that we're real and we spend money. You have us creating resources at the time to help game developers create those different things. We called it includification. We published it in like 2010 or something like that. So now we're filling the information gap. We're filling that knowledge gap. And now you have players with disabilities who can legitimately create marketing problems for you. So all of a sudden, you know, wait, we're being trashed on Twitter because of this. What's going on? Well, remember the producer said it wasn't a thing because who gives a crap? But I was telling you it's a thing and people are doing it. And so I think those four big things were the catalyst to see the world that we're at now. And do you see an impact outside of gaming from the work that you're doing? I mean, obviously you're focused on this particular industry, but I can imagine that gaming is a pioneer in some respects in this area in terms of advocacy for accessibility across other industries. Have you seen that? I got to commend the gaming world because I think where we see a lot of accessibility outside of the gaming space, it's mandated. It's mandated through parliaments, Congress, United Nations, things like that. I think a lot of the movements we've seen, for example, here in the United States, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act forced some of these things. It's not entirely absent, but there's very little legislation that's driving accessibility in the game space right now. The legislation that applies to games is really limited to communication channels, text-to-speech, speech-to-text kind of things, nothing else. But when you look at the breadth of accessibility that's coming out of studios, that's not being driven by legislation. That's being driven by great resources that fill the knowledge gap, advocacy, and access to people with disabilities, to help test your work and do everything like that. I mean, we're at the forefront of that. And I think it's because we showed that if you use the tools, you get it for free. It's not something that needs to be bolted on. It's something that if you develop with accessibility as a mindset, and I say this to anyone, no matter what you're developing, if you take on that accessibility isn't a nice to have, but a must have from the very beginning, 
and you go and find the tools that help you ideate very early in development, you will find that you'll create really accessible experiences quite easily. I always joke that if Amazon put a jump puzzle between when you put the toaster in your cart and you checked out, they wouldn't sell a lot of toasters. They wanted a barrier-free experience. But games are about challenge. Games are about barriers. So we have to understand the challenge aspects of accessibility. I think it's really interesting for our listeners in terms of how they might go about starting to implement some of these ideas into their own work. Beyond the implementation phase, what can we do in terms of advocacy, communication, better understanding of these issues? What can our listeners who are businesses, brands, and so on, what can they start to do to get this conversation more amplified? There's a phrase in the disability advocacy world was nothing about us without us. One of the services that we offer as an organization is we have something we call the player panel, which is over 600 players with disabilities from a diverse disability array who game companies come to us and say, hey, we would like to talk to people with disabilities about the things we're working on. So the reality is in the vein of nothing about us without us, companies need to make partnerships with disability organizations in their spheres so that they can find a cadre of people with disabilities they can bring in and put them as part of your user testing and put them as part of your focus groups and put them as part of your product development line because they are some of the consumers and they'll tell you what they need and they'll talk to you about their challenges and you'll learn from those experiences. I mean, and where companies are successful more often than not is one, they're hiring people with disabilities, they're bringing people with disabilities and then their product development. Just like everyone will tell you what they like when they don't like, people with disabilities will do the same. And I think we're often overlooked that. More from Mark in a moment. Now I talk to Stylus's Annie Corsa, Senior Editor of Pop Culture and Media, and Davy Pinati, Head of Product Design, about Stylus's latest macro trend, Disability Futures. This series of reports decodes how businesses can unlock new opportunities and accelerate social inclusion for people with disabilities. So we wanted to look at what accessibility means in entertainment. And we found very quickly, as it is in, in so many other ways, gaming is where some of the most daring and really exciting developments are happening. So the pop culture and media map reports all about the landscape of accessibility in gaming. Globally, there are over 400 million gamers with neurological or physical disabilities. So the opportunities here are really huge and the impetus driving innovation in this area offers a lot of lessons about how to make entertainment more accessible more broadly. So we spoke to Mark Bartlett, who's the founder of Able Gamers. And we also spoke to Brandon Cole, who's a blind gamer, and he is part of the growing vanguard of accessible gaming influencers, essentially, who are promoting and furthering the cause on social media and via streaming platforms. They're also acting as consultants for making games more accessible. So Cole is a consultant on the 2022 remake of The Last of Us, which added 60 accessibility features to that very beloved game. What were the key case studies that really sort of blew your mind? So uh, the central part of making gaming accessible does boil down to user experience to UX, which is accessible features for gameplay. So we looked at some of the most interesting innovations in that space. So the really exciting developments here are the ones that recognize that the chief components of gameplay are the ones that make it a worthwhile experience. So they champion narrative access and world building and connection. 
So one of my faves came from um, the Peruvian beer brand, Pilsen Calau. So that brand embarked on this mission to create interpreter bots for deaf players on Discord, which is a key gaming platform for gamers. So they're using AI and Pilsen bots that are programmed to listen to every voice call, which are the, the chats between players as they play on Discord. And then these messages are converted real time into sign language that's then conveyed by an on-screen avatar. So the bot can recognize different voices. Every player's chat has a distinct named avatar. The resulting tool is called e-interpreters, and it means the deaf gamers can follow the conversation that is being held with deaf fellow gamers. And I love this one because it's about recognizing that connection. It's about recognizing social interaction, real-time excitement of playing games with other people, which is something that disabled gamers have just automatically been cut out of traditionally. I also really love the AI element, and I think it feels inevitable now that AI is going to really help power some significant developments in accessibility. Brilliant. So what would be the key insights that you think all brands need to take on board from your report? I think what we would want every brand to feel after reading our macro reports is that universal accessibility, especially in terms of entertainment, means equal opportunities for enjoyment and interaction as much as participation. So usability, functionality, this is essential, but it is only part of it. How can that usability help disabled people connect, not just with each other, but with the communities they wish to be part of and interact with? And yeah, that's why I love the Pilsen Canal case study, because if emerging tech can build on this, you can demonstrate how accessibility can help people thrive and experience joy and connection. Thank you very much, Davey. So tell me about your report. My report is looking at how universal design is increasingly regarded as the norm and not a niche, but also how disability isn't uniform and how homes and products therefore must allow for personal adaptation, which of course is a big task for design. Like, how do you then realize that? It kind of looks at three different themes in the report. The first one is on accessible housing. And basically there's a massive shortage of accessible homes So slowly it's becoming a bit better regulated. There are standards being developed for accessible building for the residential sector. And we're also seeing that, you know, as consumers are preparing for aging in place, actually this is in super high demand, not just for disabled people, but our people as people are looking into the future. And then we're also seeing how a host of young designers are really changing the, what used to be very clinical aesthetic of assistive products making this into beautiful, aspirational, but helpful homeware. And I spoke to designer Bowie Wang about that, who works with Simon Dogger, who is blind. And Bowie is a Chinese designer who moved to Holland. So they basically use their experience of not seeing or not hearing their immediate environment and developing new ways of creating products using that experience. And yeah, that also is what my second part of the report's about, which is about inclusive practices for adaptive design. So really what can be made possible when disabled people are included in the creation process from the outset and how the process of designing for and with disabled people is becoming better facilitated and more equitable. Loads of interesting stuff happening there, especially with tech brands that are really pioneering in this. Google has opened its Accessibility Discovery Center in London And then Microsoft has opened its inclusive tech lab in Washington. And I emailed with Solomon Romney, who is the accessibility program manager at the Microsoft inclusive tech lab, who 
yeah, gave us some amazing insight in how to do this in a good way. And then the third section of my report is looking at innovation for unconstrained mobility and dexterity. So looking at mobility aids and prosthetics and how progressive design and next-gen materials are really changing the perspectives on these products, making movement more agile with really streamlined engineering and expressive personalized aesthetics. And a really beautiful case study I thought there was around braces, scoliosis braces that have to be worn to be effective for over 18 hours. Most patients that have to wear these are teenage girls. So for them, aesthetics are really important. And, you know, they used to look quite horrible. They're very restrictive, so they're not comfortable. And uh, Song Yu Shi, a US-based designer, has basically created this beautiful brace that grows with you as you grow, has a beautiful pattern that's also airflow enhancing, that's adjustable, it's more comfortable, and it looks really fashionable. And it's just a really smart way of looking how CMF can also raise confidence and you know how it is so important for these products. Brilliant. So what would you say is the one takeaway that the brands need to take on board from your report? Well, I have my key insights in the report, but what I actually loved, and I thought maybe I could mention here, is something that Solomon Romney mentioned. And I didn't put it in the report because just simply ran out of space. But what I asked him is, you know, some people will read this report and think, but how can smaller brands apply this way of working? The non-Microsoft that can't open their entire dedicated laboratory with that's well-staffed and, you know, custom built for this. So I asked, like, what are other ways to honor the nothing about us without us adage? And he said, always start with the disability community. Go out and talk to people with disabilities. Listen to them. And most importantly, they are not there to validate existing ideas, but to help you generate new ones. Hear where they struggle, but don't expect them to know how to solve it. That is your role. You cannot improve accessibility for all people all the time. We'll never solve accessibility. So think of it as a process rather than an end goal. Pick one part of the disability community, one need, one experience, and start there. And then keep your scope focused on that. It is easy for scope to creep outwards, but don't let it. Do something small to improve that experience, then do another small thing, then another, and keep doing that forever. And all those small things will add up to something big. It's the small things that can cause the biggest hassles, but also make this biggest difference. Disability Futures, along with all our other macro trends and weekly reports, are available to members on the Stylus website. If you're not already a member and would like to find out how access to Stylus could benefit your business, email innovation at stylus.com or visit stylus.com slash membership. Now back to my interview with Mark Barlet. So what does the future look like? Are you positive? Are the kinds of changes that you want to see being made, are they long-term changes or is there still a lot of work to do? You know, at the very beginning, I told you I just wanted to help people with disabilities and I wanted to just empower that. And I couldn't because I had to be an advocate. I had to try to find a way to make change on the inside. I call it we've evolved from advocacy to action because we're no longer spending as much time advocating for people with disabilities. Where our organization is spending a lot of those cycles that we were putting towards the game industry is now through education, through testing their stuff, through helping them find those people with disabilities. 
What that has allowed us to do, though, is go back to why I originally wanted this organization, which was to empower people with disabilities to enjoy gaming. I have a team of peer counselors who work one-on-one with individuals with disabilities. I have a team that every day is going and, you know, people with disabilities reach out to us and say, you know, hey, I just had a car accident and I'm trying to get back in gaming. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. And I have a team of experts that helps them, that guides them through that process. And because a lot of the technology that are needed in order to enable that play, that's not covered by insurance. So for those that can't afford it, you know, my nonprofit gives it to them. The advocacy side of my organization and the education side is a well-oiled machine. But now that these games are coming out that are truly accessible, more and more people with disabilities who had largely maybe ignored gaming because it was not there are now coming to us. And so we're overwhelmed with people who now individually want help. And this is where the bulk of the resources my organization is going to. I mean, a custom controller for a person with disabilities can cost as little as you know $150, but as much as $1,500. And for someone who's living on a fixed income, that $1,500 may as well be $50,000. And so what we're doing as an organization is we're looking for partners that help bring more resources into us because we are a nonprofit and we're on the front line. And it's weird as a nonprofit because we're helping industry, but all the work that I'm doing to help industry is hubbed with the player in the middle. I know the importance of gaming to people with disabilities. I know the joy, the mental health outcomes that come from it, the fact that they're not socially isolated. So I want your game to be accessible so that I can make a friend in it and play it. So right now, from an organizational standpoint, we're resource starved to help all the people that are coming to us. We have a waiting list of almost 2,000 people waiting their turn, and we just take the next one as resources allow us, and we help them when we move to the next one. But every day, two or three more people are joining the queue. So if our mission speaks to you and you'd like to help us really grow capacity, I encourage you to either reach out to me directly or visit our website at ablegamers.org. That's A-B-L-E-G-A-M-E-R-S.org. We're really looking for partners that are willing to invest in allowing a nearly 20-year-old organization run by passionate gamers with disabilities to bring as many people into this wonderful space as possible. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live, and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at wearestylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.